It's planting season, and it's not too late to make sure your crops grow up fed and happy. Regardless of your spring crop, Fed and Happy offers a variety of worm-casting solutions in liquid and solid form to supercharge your soil, your yields, and your profitability. For fast, vibrant germination and seedling growth, mix your seed with Fed and Happy's screened granular castings pre-drilling. The Fed and Happy liquid seed treat and extracts offer the ideal mix of soluble solids loaded with living beneficial biology, mycorrhizal fungi, humates, and more. The Fed and Happy small spreadable castings are ideal for fast, easy soil incorporation. The large offer long-term stability and soil growth. But you don't have to figure this out on your own. Just call 833-GO-WORMS to speak with our farm team experts for a fast turnaround on a custom solution for your needs. Fare better against pests, disease, drought, and other potential hazards this season with Fed and Happy Worm Castings. Visit FedandHappy.com for a healthy harvest and any lawn, garden, and tree care needs. Available for pickup and on-farm delivery. That's F-E-D-N-Happy.com. Or call 833-GO-WORMS. Happy planting. Welcome. You're listening to Casually Baked, the podcast. Home base for the can of curious. Thanks for tuning in. It's high time. We had a high time. Together. Together. Yes, it's high time. We had a high time. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, your host and cannabis lifestyle guide. The cannabis world recently lost a tiny but mighty warrior for our movement. Charlotte Figgy passed on at age 13. Her story sparked the CBD movement that drastically changed the way the gen pop views cannabis. Dravet syndrome is a rare and debilitating form of epilepsy that first appears when children are young. From the time she was just three months old, Charlotte suffered hundreds of small and large seizures every day. The pharmaceutical protocols proved ineffective, and by the age of five, Charlotte struggled to walk and talk and required a feeding tube. Charlotte's parents learned about the potential of CBD to treat the disease. They experimented with CBD oil and saw extraordinary results in little Charlotte. Paige Figgy, Charlotte's mom, weaned her off of anti-epileptic pharmaceutical drugs, and soon Charlotte was walking, playing, and feeding herself. Her story was featured in academic literature. In her honor, the Stanley brothers named their high CBD, low THC strain, Charlotte's Web. The flower and Charlotte's story took on global significance in 2013 when she appeared in a documentary by CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. The documentary showed Charlotte laughing and playing, her seizures mitigated by the CBD. Charlotte even changed minds at the Epilepsy Foundation. After early hesitancy, the foundation came to embrace the therapeutic potential that CBD could hold for children with epilepsy. For families across the world whose children suffered from Dravet and similar epileptic conditions, seeing videos of Charlotte were a revelation and a huge boost of hope. Hundreds of families moved to Colorado seeking CBD for their children under the state's medical marijuana laws. The migration was so large, families called themselves marijuana refugees. Charlotte and her mom, Paige, soon became prominent faces of the medical cannabis movement across the country and the world. Paige and the Stanley brothers became outspoken advocates for legalizing CBD across the country. The passing of Charlotte calls for more lightworkers to join the movement. Today's guest on the podcast is no stranger to cannabis activism, and he's here to inspire us to action. Andrew D'Angelo is a thought leader in cannabis with a proven track record of enacting systemic social change and developing best practices within the cannabis industry. 
Over two decades as an activist, Andrew worked on a variety of voter initiatives which legalized medical and adult-use cannabis in San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and the state of California. As a co-founder and advisor to Harborside, Andrew has pioneered legal cannabis business processes and provided groundbreaking political engagement. His thought leadership helped guide the development of gold standard cannabis retail by innovating many quote-unquote firsts for the industry in retail, packaging, inventory management, senior outreach, and standing up to the federal government. Andrew is also a co-founder and treasurer of the board for the nonprofit Last Prisoner Project and a founding board of directors member of the California Cannabis Industry Association, where he served from 2013 to 2020. Now, while you settle in, I want you to ponder this question. How might you activate your activism right now in a way that feels good for you? But before you answer, it's time to get casually baked. I got the bottle of wine, the high dollar kind. I got the West Coast smoke, but I better just Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on an episode of the podcast. Um, I'm very happy to be with you today, Joanna. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I think cannabis activism is a super fun topic to talk about right now because, you know, we're all trapped at home and, you know, we have less activities that we can go out and do. And so I think people are reevaluating the things that they're doing, the things that they're involved with, and you've got such a beautiful story of cannabis activism. And so I would love for you to inspire the Casually Baked listeners today. Absolutely. It's a wonderful time to get more politically active and plug into what's happening with cannabis in the community right now. Perfect time to do it. Awesome. Well, Andrew, let's get started. How did cannabis initially find you? I'm Andrew D'Angelo. Many of you may know my older brother, Steve D'Angelo. He's considered the, quote, father of the legal cannabis industry. And Steve is 10 years older than I am. And he ran away from home when he was 13 or 14. Well, not really run away from home, (laughs) but um, he left home and joined the anti-war movement. This is when the Vietnam War was still happening around 1970, early 70s. And um, he started taking cannabis and and trading cannabis when he was a teenager. I was just, uh, I was barely out of diapers at that point. Uh, And as I grew up, I became an athlete in high school. I wanted to be a professional athlete. That was my first dream. And Mm -hmm. I got hurt when I was 15. I injured my back terribly and I was sidelined for about six months and I couldn't play sports. And my dream of being a professional athlete was dead. And that's devastating for a teenager. Devastating, right? Um, Not only are you in physical pain, but, you know, this dream you've cultivated for years is over. And when you're that age, it's really hard to imagine another dream. It's really hard to imagine something else because you've invested so much in that. Um, But my brother handed me a joint. um, And up until that point, I had said no to his overtures because I was an athlete and I didn't want to take cannabis, but um, I was hurt. And so I took the joint, I smoked it and it changed my life. That joint, not only did it relieve my physical pain, but it did something to my mind um, that allowed me to understand there was going to be more to life than playing sports. And that my job now was to opened my mind up to all the different possibilities and other dreams that were out there for me. And I very quickly was able to pivot from a dream of being a professional athlete to the dream of being a professional actor. This was um, in the 1980s. This was 1983, 84. So there was no cannabis industry. There was no legalization. There was not even medical cannabis had had. Um, really made an impact yet. So this was the very, very early days. And in those days, um, you know, you you had to have some other hustle going on that was not cannabis. You had to have uh, uh, some kind of day job, I guess you would say. And so 
I tried to be an actor and I went off to college as a young man with half a pound of weed and, and dreams of being an actor. <laughs> and I, I came to California. I was, we grew up on the East coast in Washington, DC. I came to California, didn't know a single person and, you know, started my journey with cannabis and creativity uh, at that point. I love it. I love it. I was uh, an athlete and played a couple of years of college basketball and didn't dive into cannabis and creativity myself until that was over. I was the same as you. Like, I'm focused on this thing. And when I'm done, that's when it all started. Yeah, well, it's cannabis and athletics, at least in those days, in those very early days, we didn't have lab testing. We didn't have CBD. We didn't have all these other things. Um, that actually helps athletes perform better or recover better is maybe a better way of putting it. But it just didn't mix very good, you know. Um, well, yeah, uh, we were taught that it was terrible. So Yeah, and and I actually, you know, after our cannabis came into my life and I recovered from my injury, um, uh, you know, I was able to incorporate cannabis into my athletic regimen a little bit more um, smoothly. But, yeah, it was considered... And then there was also, you know, drug testing that we had to deal with. Um, uh, so you couldn't, <laughs> you yeah. couldn't really, you couldn't really do it as an athlete, um, and many other professions, because that that's when drug testing started to hit. Was during the Reagan years when mm-hmm. I was in high school. Mm-hmm. So then, what inspired you to begin cannabis activism in college, or did you, or were you just selling pot and acting? Well. Yeah, I was selling weed and acting in college. Of course, I was advocating for the plant. In those days, you weren't allowed to start a cannabis activist uh, activist group on campus. Um, that that was not allowed. Um, and so I started a different group called CRAFT, Chapman Representatives for Artistic Freedom and Talent is the, what the acronym stands for. And it was just at that time, Chapman University was a very conservative school behind the orange curtain down there in Orange County, and I was one of the few liberal progressive freaks on campus, and, <laughs> and, and the school would not even let us perform plays that had profanity or nudity in them, um, um, if you can believe that. Um, and so I started that organization to give artists, progressive artists, because all the artists in the school were freaks and progressives like I was. And and so we needed an organization that would allow us to work and do liberal progressive theater and film within a very conservative campus. And, and, And what that organization allowed me to do was tap into the fees that students pay for student government and for student activities. And once we had a legitimate organization that was sponsored by the student government, I was able to tap into those funds and we were actually able to spend a few thousand dollars every year creating radical theater with money that very conservative families were sending their kids to conservative (laughs) schools. Um, So we were doing a little bit of guerrilla activism in that way in those days. That was some of the early work I did. I always knew that cannabis, because of my brother Steve, because I loved cannabis so much, it had such a big impact on me when I took that first joint and subsequent um, sessions after that. It just really transformed my thinking and my philosophy and my worldview that I knew it was going to be a part of my lifestyle, certainly, if not my profession uh, for the rest of my life. I just had such a strong connection with the plant. I just knew that it had to be in my life on a daily basis. And in those days, the only way you could really have cannabis in your life on a daily basis was to be in the cannabis trade itself. Uh, so it was it was natural for me to do that. And it just turned out that my athletic skills, some of the discipline I learned as an athlete and some of the skills I learned as an actor were actually great skills to have in the underground cannabis economy. Uh, the acting skills helped me not get caught and hide from the world. And the athletic, <laughs> the athletic discipline gave me, you know, a discipline that few weed dealers had in those days. And, and I can totally up, relate. Absolutely. You know I mean? and, mm-hmm. and that gave, that gave me a little bit of a competitive advantage in, in a strange sort of way in the cannabis trade in those early, early, early underground days. And I didn't expect that to happen, but it was a nice sort of side effect. Yeah. So tell us about some of those 
early cannabis-inspired actions that you took. You know, you starting that on-campus organization craft, you you probably started learning some skills like, you know, guerrilla marketing, if you will, through plays and things like that. What are some of the other things that you did that eventually ended up translating into your life as an activist? Yeah, well, political activism is about creating change in society. And then, of course, once you create that change, it sort of transforms from political activism to politics itself. Uh, because uh, once you've changed the laws and some, you've ended prohibition, now you're no longer an activist. Now you're actually in the political system and you're trying to create change within the actual political system. So that's what we're doing right now with Prop 64. It's a disaster, right? Yes. Prop 64 is just an utter, complete, total disaster for the community, um, even for people like me, um, it's a disaster. We have to fix it. That is going to require some activism, but it's mo- mostly going to require us working the political system largely from the inside. Uh, and that's a different process that we're all learning about right now. Um, as an activist in those early days, you know, just trying to get your voice heard. For a long time, we talked about legalizing cannabis, nobody would cover us. The press wouldn't cover us. Um, Nobody would listen to us. Nobody took us seriously at all. So what do you do then? Well, then you have to get into the streets a little bit and try to get some coverage and get um, some attention to your message. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, That can work. Then we learned, well, it helps if the people you have in the street also have a compelling story. So then we learned that sick people with AIDS, this medicine is really helping sick people with AIDS. It's really helping kids with epilepsy. It's really helping seniors. And once we started putting those folks into the street and in front of the camera and in front of the microphone and on programs like yours, those stories to started to get out into the world, and we started to create empathy with our protagonists within our community so that the mainstream world would, would look at a, a, a little girl like Charlotte Figgy mm-hmm. and say, hold on, hold on a second. Something's very profoundly wrong here. This is a little girl with epilepsy. She's seven years old, eight years old, 10 years old. She has no choice in the matter. She's an epileptic. She has all these seizures every day. This medicine's helping her. Hold on a second. Something's profoundly wrong. And those stories are what really changed the tide. Yeah. They They forced the mainstream to bear witness to these people's situations and circumstances. I mean, I saw a video on Facebook today that someone posted of someone abusing a child. I mean, it physically upset me this morning. And I'm just like, you know, this stuff is happening. It's happening all the time. And, you know, if if someone doesn't slap you across the face with it, you know, sometimes we don't see things and we don't recognize and it doesn't hit close to home. Having that sort of a message and that visual storytelling is super powerful. Yeah. And I think sometimes as activists, we're so passionate about whatever it is that we're trying to activate in society, whatever change we're trying to create, that we sometimes make it about us because we're trying to get this attention. So we're jumping up and down and are waving our hands and we're organizing actions. And then you realize, hold on, if I make it about somebody else, not about me, if I make it about Charlotte, if I make it about a senior struggling with arthritis, if I make it about someone who's struggling with HIV, you know, then my message becomes more powerful because it's not about me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was a big lesson we learned as activists. Um, it helped us amplify our message and get more eyes on the message and and more empathy from mainstream society. At a certain point when you're in the fringes and on the outside of mainstream society, if you want mainstream society to create the change that you're asking for, you've got to engage them 
uh, and the best way to engage them, we found over the years, is to engage the heart. Uh, for years and years, we made these rational arguments that personal freedom and you can't criminalize a plant and creation of God and all of these rational arguments, and they just didn't work. Yeah. But once, once we started touching people in their heart with these kids and with these uh, people suffering from HIV, then we were able to engage mainstream society. And, and it was a very powerful lesson. Make it about somebody else, not about you. And you may find that that works better. I like it. So, you know, in those early days, that was something that you and Steve did. Um, are there some other things that y'all did that can still translate to today's market where people can emulate these sorts of things in their community? Because I know, you know, it's a totally different scene than it was 20, 25 years ago. But what are some of those things from the past that can still be replicated now in the present? Well, okay. In the present, let's just use Prop 64 as the example, because that's happening in the present. And we all know we have to fix it. Mm -hmm. um, and our problem with fixing it is very similar to the problem we had before we were able to engage the heart of mainstream society. Uh, so right now, you know, there's we're fragmented. Our, our movement and our industry is fragmented. And as a result, we're unable to get either bills passed in Sacramento that would lower taxes and lower barriers of entry and release some of these funds to equity licensees and to just make the system work better for everybody and provide more access to the whole state, everybody in the state of California. That fragmentation has to end. If we, if we want to fix Prop 64, we're going to have to find a way to come together. And, you know, Prop 215, the medical and, and we were able to come together because we all recognized that we had a story that was moving mainstream society and we had to lean into it. Um, Prop 64 was really different because we were a little bit fragmented um, because a lot of us knew that Prop 64 framework was problematic. But we didn't want to lose Prop 64 because when we lost Prop 19, the feds cracked down on a whole bunch of people, including Harborside. So, and a whole bunch of businesses went under and people went to prison mm -hmm. uh, because Prop 19 failed and the, it emboldened the federal government. To and come yeah, and attack. people had put themselves completely out there. Completely out there, right? And, and we didn't want 64 to lose because we didn't want that to happen again. Mm -hmm. But we also knew that 64 was flawed. Well, 64 was extremely complicated. It was just flawed, right? Um, and, and, and so now to fix it, we're going to have to come together again and end this fragmentation. And we haven't done it yet. If you look up trade associations in the state of California for cannabis, there's probably 50 of them, if not. 150 of them. And what happens is they all have a lobbyist. They're all working the elected officials in Sacramento. They all have something a little bit different to say, and they confuse the elected officials. So the ele elected officials just vote no, mm -hmm. because it's easier for them. Yeah. No, they understand no. They don't understand 25 different versions of yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and 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 I, I wish I could communicate with you and the listeners a magic bullet to solve this problem of fragmentation that we're having. Um, but I don't. Uh, well, but I that is a good point, because that is definitely a California problem. But, you know, someone listening in a state like Texas, this is just more of a cautionary tale for someone like that. Like you don't let it get to this point. And it's, you know, creating that community within the movement from the outset. So have there been some things that, that you and Steve have done to try to bring that together? You know, what are some of the things that you're experimenting with right now to try to help with solve this fragmentation problem? 
Well, when Prop 19 failed, that's when I worked with a group of other folks to start the California Cannabis Industry Association, which was formed just a year or two after the National Cannabis Industry Association. So, you know, we went, we, we saw in those days that we needed the cannabis industry to help affect some of this change because the industry was starting to generate some money and could use some of that money to create political change. Because remember, now we're in the political system. We're not a bunch of activists outside the system trying to change it. Now, in Texas, you're still outside the system Mm -hmm. and you have to change it. And Texas is really problematic because they don't have a ballot initiative process there. Um, And so the legislature has to do it. And the legislature only meets once every two years. And it's a very conservative state. Uh, And activists have tried very, very hard to get just to get decrim done. Took them several. It took them like four years to get decrim done. I think they got decrim done in 2019, if I remember correctly. Uh, But they still don't have medical done. They still don't have adult use done. And um, but they did get decrim done. And, you know, remember, Prop 19 failed and then Prop 64 succeeded. And before Prop 19, going all the way back to 1972, there were other ballot initiatives in the state of California with respect to cannabis that failed. Mm -hmm. So one of the big lessons I've learned and Steve and I've learned is learn from your failures. So we have to learn from our failures. And, you know, when we were failing to um, advance the rational argument, then we realized, wow, it can't, the story can't be about the activists. It has to be about the patients. Okay. Wow. That worked. Okay. Now it's moving the needle and mainstream society is starting to see some empathy with the patient. Okay. Now, how can we get mainstream society to, enough empathy to start saying, you know what, I'm okay having a cannabis dispensary in my neighborhood. I'm okay with my kids walking past a cannabis dispensary on their way to school. This is the, the, this is the areas, these are the new battles that we, we have to fight right now. It's really very much at the local level that this is happening now. And this is where people have more political power than Perhaps they realize. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because at the local level, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. The fact of the matter is here in Oakland or any town in this country or pretty much anywhere in the Western world, those that participate in democracy have a bigger voice than those that don't. And unfortunately, some of that comes down to pay or play system of politics that we have in California and this country. But a lot of it comes down to who shows up at the city council meeting mm-hmm. and who and who doesn't. Okay. Who shows up at the community uh, meeting where they're talking about the dispensary that's being proposed uh, in the neighborhood and who doesn't show up. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you don't show up, you don't have any right to complain, man. I don't want to hear it. You have to show up at the local level and you have to do your activism. Democracy depends on us participating. And, yeah, the system's rigged. And, yeah, it's a pay-to-play system. And, yeah, it sucks. And, yeah, it's awful. And, yeah, it's corrupt. But within all of those yeah (laughs) is also political power uh, because we've seen it. We didn't get legal in Oakland or California because mainstream society decided it should be legal. We had to kick, scream, and drag them every inch of the way. And we're going to have to keep doing that work. Even the Democratic Party is no friend of cannabis. I hate to tell everybody that. It's true. They're just not. They may be more tolerant of us than the Republican Party is, but they're not our friend, and they probably won't be our friend until we can deliver them more votes and more money. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, because it is, you know, the system is what it is. We didn't design it, but we've already won within it 
and we can keep winning within it, but not if we're fragmented and not if every trade organization or every activist group thinks they have all the answers and only the answer and everybody else needs to F off. If that's the attitude that people have, it's going to be hard for us to end the fragmentation. One of the things I've learned over the years is there's this thing called the preferential bias. It's something I've struggled with. It's something you sort of grow out of as you get older and you realize that you're not always right. And sometimes my viewpoint actually is not the correct viewpoint for the larger society or the larger community. And sometimes I need to be open to changing my my viewpoint a little bit to make room for other viewpoints so that we can build a coalition uh, instead of, of blocking each other with purity tests that none of us can pass. You know, I agree. And, you know, when you're talking about how challenging it is and how, you know, this construct that we live in, it's a rigged system that made me think of like, you know, one of the most important things that an activist in whatever you know, you're interested in and passionate about, you have to develop a hopeful mindset. You have to be able to have that ability to shift perspectives because otherwise you are going to be completely drained and activism will suck the life out of you. And, you know, you run the risk of becoming super bitter, you know? And so I think in the way that we have to work things now, it's really important to make sure that your your ego takes a back seat <laughs> and that you um, you have that hopeful mentality working through this because it's not easy and it's a game of chess and not checkers. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. That's a powerful lesson for everyone to really hear because it's easy to get cynical and it's easy to get bitter and it's easy to get burned out doing this work. Ultimately. We have to find a positive and joyful experience within ourselves doing this work. If we don't, then the journey is just going to be too hard, and, and, and you may find yourself unhappy, angry, bitter, sad, depressed, suicidal, because it is such a struggle. We all have to cultivate that positive relationship to the life force. Ultimately, it is our reverence for life and for the life force that makes us activists. It's our reverence for community and and equality and people living in communion with spirit and each other in a way that's harmonious, that, that gives everybody opportunity to be the full expression of themselves that, that they're able to be. That's what's driving all of us to be activists. And, and, and we have to always cultivate that within us. And it's very, very hard. I've certainly, uh, in my 50 year, two years on this planet, I've had some very dark years where I was very, very depressed and very, very sad and felt very alone because I lost touch with that. Uh, and I had to learn through being in very dark places that it was actually my job as an activist to stay in that positive place. Because if if I can't feel that way, I can't create that feeling in others. And, yes. and, and, and ultimately, that's what we're trying to do. Yes. Preach. I'm glad you said yeah. <laughs> No, I'm just glad you said that. You're, you're so right. I mean, being a happy person. That's the holy mission of every human being, really, is to is to find that. Well, and we can't inspire others to join us if we don't give them something magnetic to latch on to. That's right. That's right. So one thing that I read in your bio about your creation, your and Steve's creation of Harborside, is you said we wanted to create a healing and learning center where patients could activate their activism, heal their bodies and minds, and access cannabis medicine for free if they were living in poverty. My job was to take this enormous vision that had never been done before and make it operational. 
it's a big, beautiful dream to have. And and y'all have created that space here in Oakland and um, in San Jose and a few other places in California. Talk to me a little bit about that process and, and the joy that it brought you and, and probably the headaches as well. Sure. I'd be happy to share that story. It's a great story. You know, remember before 64, um, we were mandated by the attorney general at that time, Jerry Brown, before he became governor again, uh, that we had to operate our, our businesses as nonprofits. So that actually, Steve and I saw that as an opportunity to um, create something with Harborside that, that was building off some of the early visions that Berkeley Patients Group, um, Debbie Goldsberry, Don Duncan, Dennis Perone, Brownie Mary, some of those community centers that they had built early on. We wanted to build upon that work and, and sort of take it a little bit more mainstream. Uh, and make and and create a facility where you know more again building that bridge to the mainstream is something Steve and I've been working on our whole career. So we wanted to um, you know Berkeley Patients Group was the first group that I know of. Dennis Perone was the first person before them who did free holistic services with the medicine. So you come get medicine, and if you didn't have enough money, you could get free medicine. If you didn't have money. For healthcare, we would provide yoga and reiki and nutrition and, and Chinese herbal therapies and alternative healthcare for people. Um, so, and you and, and, you were witness to this stuff with Dennis Perone because you stayed at the compound, right? Yeah, when I was 21 years old and I graduated from college, I stayed at Dennis's compound for uh, uh, about a month. And I got to see all that work firsthand. And then that was like was a ad- baptism. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was. It was <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not sure that's the word I would use, <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, but it was it was it was a real gift to be able to be, you know, the only reason I ended up there is because my brother and Dennis were old friends and I needed a place to crash as I came to San Francisco to go to acting school. Uh, and Dennis uh, provided that for me. Um, so yes, we got to learn from those early pioneers, and and we wanted to sort of take that and sort of scale it up. Uh, and so in, in Oakland, I don't know how many hours of free healthcare services we provided to the community, um, but it was tens of thousands of hours, millions of dollars of we invested in that. Um, same thing with the free medicine. I think we were given away. I don't know, five or 10 pounds a month of free medicine uh, to people who couldn't afford it. Uh, Very proud of those programs. A a lot of that went away with Prop 64, unfortunately. Um, And and we have, we still do the holistic services, but we do have to charge people a sliding scale for them now. Um, We're we're working on getting the free medicine back, but that was illegal when 64 happened. And we just got a bill passed last year to, get that back but they put some restrictions in it for retailers and it's kind of hard to get around them so we're working on on getting those programs uh, up and running again as but they're not as robust as they were uh, under the medical program uh, and I think the big lesson there is that the nonprofit model needs to be in the cannabis ecosystem somehow I think um, this is particularly important for legacy growers and operators, um, people in the community um, that have been trading in cannabis for, for perhaps generations. That, that that community of people might be more comfortable working in a nonprofit model. That community of people might be able to experience more autonomy in a nonprofit model and serve their immediate local community better than some of these for-profit models and Mm -hmm. multi, you know, these big multi-state operators with all this public money and all these investors and, you know. Yeah, it's a totally different playing field. 
totally different playing field. We don't we don't need to name names, but the skill set you need to be a multi-state publicly traded operator in cannabis is totally different than the skill set you need to open a shop in your neighborhood that serves your immediate community that creates community. Those are two different skill sets, and I think the the nonprofit model is something that we need to really think about in California and how we can incorporate that. Remember, there's no restriction from a licensing point of view on what the model should be. Nobody in Sacramento or Oakland or any town or county in California is going to say you must be for profit. And in fact, David Bronner from Bronner Soap, he's got mm-hmm. um, he's Brother got, David's. He, Brother David's a nonprofit manufacturing brand and 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 their whole thing is they're going to make sure that small farmers that they get their weed from are going to get paid well they're going to have health care they're going to have retirement they're going to take care of them uh and i'm really really impressed with that model i don't know how well they're doing but that's the kind of innovative stuff activists can do so you're having a hard time building a for-profit cannabis dispensary model or delivery company or grow or manufacturing, try a nonprofit model. Maybe it'll work. You don't need as much money. You don't need to do as many things. And you can focus on what you're good at. You've been selling weed in your neighborhood for 20 years. You know, having a a dispensary or or delivery business is well within your skill set. But going out and raising hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars from very transactional investor type people may not be. So I think that, you know, we need to start thinking about the nonprofit model within the ecosystem in California and globally, because I think our people, where I come from, you know, that legacy and, and, and that community, we might be better suited for that. And you know what, if you can have a little shop in, you know, the worst neighborhoods of L.A. or Oakland or San Francisco or Richmond, and you can serve your community and you can pay yourself a nice low six-figure salary and you can have health care benefits and you can have retirement benefits. You know what? Not a bad life. Yeah. Not a bad life. You come into work every day, you serve your community, you get your paycheck, you have your health care, your 401k. Not bad for us, not bad for us. And, and I think that, that that is a place where folks might want to think about looking because I, I think it could be very vibrant for us. Yeah. Diversify the dream. <laughs> we don't all have to have that same one. Yeah. I mean, not, it, it, it's like, it, I, I call it my own private island syndrome uh, where, you know, and I see this not just with investors who you know, think that way naturally, but even in community people or legacy people where they're like, yeah, man, I'm going to make all this money. I'm going to have my own private island. Um, and, you know, that's just the wrong dream, man. Yeah. That's not the, that's not the right dream to be having. Um, and I, I appreciate people who have that dream. I'm sure there's plenty of, of people I know and love that, that cultivate that. Um, and I hope you get it. And, Please invite me down to your island. I'd love to hang out. <laughs> but realistically speaking, what one has to do to get your own private island is beyond the value system that most cannabis people hold in their hearts. Uh, and so I think we have to remember that, too. Um, let's not covet the rewards of a system that we know is not working for the world. No, it's a sacred plant that is of service to us. And people that really love cannabis and connect with it, they do have those feelings of service. You know, it's the people to me that are those go big, go home, let's make a shit ton of money and, you know, and get out of here. Those people don't have a relationship with cannabis the way I do. You're right. Most of them don't even smoke weed. Mm-hmm. It's true. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. Well, us lovers of the plant, you know, we do have to stick together. And and so I'm really thrilled to see David Bronner and people out there 
you know, innovating new models for the community because I think this for-profit model that everybody is digging to may not be serving all of us so well. Some of us, yes, but not all of us. So let's zag to some different models. And I think what David's doing over there is really important. I agree. I agree. And I have a question. Since you have Harborside, maybe you know a little bit more. I'm curious how our cannabis business community is actually doing during this pandemic. Cannabis was deemed a necessity here and an essential um, in California. Do you know how the dispensaries and delivery services are doing right now? I have some insight on that that I'd be happy to share with you. Just let's be clear, not every, the state deemed us essential, but the counties and the local people have a lot of say over that. So our shop in San Jose, as an example, we can only deliver to medical patients. So if you don't have a medical recommendation, I can't serve you in San Jose. So that was a decision Santa Clara County made. We're trying to reverse that. We got a petition going. Um, you can, if you go to shopharborside.com, I'm sure you'll see it on there. You'll see it everywhere on any of the activist websites right now. I was fixing to um, say, and listeners, that is an example of activating your activism. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, and there are other places in the state that have done that too. So we, 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 we have to keep doing our political work to make sure we are deemed essential. But even if we are deemed essential, it, you know, there, I know of furloughs that are happening. I know of, of contractions that are happening. Um, I'm not sure if the legacy market's going to serve the community during the virus or if the legal market or maybe a little bit of both. Um, what I do know is that people need cannabis more than ever during this crisis. People are going to consume more cannabis during crisis than not. And our number one job in the legal industry right now is to get cannabis to the people. Um, we were doing all kinds of safety measures for our staff. You can read all about them on our website. Um, we're following all the guidelines. We've also instituted curbside uh, pickup uh, right now. So it's, it's a very hard moment for any, any business, any retail business. Um, and cannabis is no exception. We, 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 the fact that many cannabis businesses are deemed essential is certainly helpful, uh, but is by no means a magic bullet to get us through this. And, and I'm, uh, quite a few people are going to lose their jobs or get furloughed temporarily. And, you know, yeah. it, may, it may cause another wave of extinction events. That's what I worry about the most. The industry's already so fragile. How many more hits can we take, right. um, you know, before ships start sinking? Uh, there's only so many torpedoes any business can take uh, before it, it, it starts to sink. So, Well, uh, and two, not, you know, not being a federally legal substance, all of these financial programs that are being rolled out by the government, you know, I assume cannabis businesses aren't eligible no, it's illegal for the federal government to give $1 directly to any cannabis business because it's Schedule 1. Uh, those laws are very, very clear. What might happen, and this is probably very unlikely, but what might happen is the state or locals might be able to grant some money to cannabis for relief. We will be at the very bottom of their list. And um, you being Harborside, any of us, oh, any, any oh. cannabis. Oh, any, got it. Any. Yeah, at the bottom of the government's take care uh, of yeah, list. We'll, oh, yeah. Yes, we will be at the bottom of the take care of list. Um, so, you know, that's that's all I can tell everybody. Don't expect it. Don't count on it. Don't even think about it. Um, but I always like to say, if you don't ask for what you want, you're certainly not going to get it. No, and there's groups like CCIA and plenty, all the trade organizations are on this, uh, like White on Rice. Um, uh, CCIA is probably the biggest one in California working on this. If there's any public money to be had during this crisis for cannabis, the trade organizations will figure out a way to get it. Um, I just am skeptical because for two years I've been trying to fix Prop 64. I was on the board of CCIA 
uh, up until just this January, and I tried to fix it. And we had, and there was no crisis, and the economy was doing great, and we couldn't fix it. Um, and now that we have a crisis and the economy is not doing so great, I just, uh, you know, I'm just realistically, I, I, you know, if the governor has to choose between a restaurant group and a cannabis group to give money to, he's going to choose the restaurant group every single time. Mm -hmm. And that's just the reality of where we're at. The stigma of cannabis is, is still pretty big. And it's, when it comes to counting dollars and cents in something like a stimulus bill, that stigma is going to rear its ugly head, unfortunately. And I'd be surprised if we get any of it. Yeah. Well, and I think as well, you know, you saying that education becomes such a huge piece of activism as well. So, you know, while we're showcasing people and their stories, it's also just educating people on, you know, the robust value of the plant. And so, you know, instead of beating your head against the wall on all of the political stuff in moments like this, sometimes we step away and we take a breath and we focus on educating people about the benefits of the plant. But I think the biggest piece for me with activism is to just make sure you don't burn yourself out. It's definitely a marathon. Yes. Absolutely. And sometimes you have to step away from it a little bit and go back to the gig economy or, or running your business or whatever it is and recharge the batteries and, and come back into it. There, there's a reason that we have things like term limits. There's a reason we that, that politicians aren't supposed to be in, in office forever and ever and ever. I know that, that that's sometimes not the case, but Democracy really requires new energy and new leaders to come in and out and in and out. And and those of us who do it for a while, we can gain wisdom and we can certainly mentor and, and help others. But but it's really important, you know, like I've been on the board of CCIA for six years. I'm stepping back for a couple of years. I might get back on that board someday or who knows, I might be running the whole whole organization someday. We don't know, but but it is take care of yourself and 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 you know political activism is not going anywhere. We will need to change society from now until you know yeah, forever, forever, um, forever. Um, so so it's okay, you know, it's okay if you have to step back and take care of yourself a little bit. That's better than becoming an angry, bitter, cynical person. I concur. Well, Andrew, do you have a shameless plug? Is there anything that you want us to know that maybe I didn't ask you or that's important to the conversation? Yes. My shameless plug is for the Last Prisoner Project. Ooh, good one. Yes. That's the nonprofit Steve and I started last year, lastprisonerproject.org. We're trying to get people out of prison for cannabis crimes should have never been locked up in the first place. And now we're trying to get people released early so they don't die from the virus. We have a petition going on our website. You can make a small donation there and just look out for LPP. We have lots of events on 420 to plug into. And uh, we're not the only group doing social justice. So if, if, if you find another group uh, to plug into, plug in there. But, you know, it's, it's just shameful. We still have people in prison for weed with all that's happening with the with the industry. So that's my shameless plug. <laughs> well, we may have to talk again because I want to do a series on social justice reform because there are so many stories to tell and, you know, it's just too much for a single episode. So I would I would love to talk um, more in depth about the Last Prisoner Project on an upcoming episode. Absolutely. And you should talk to um, the, the two ladies who run the organization. Uh, they're fantastic. So yeah, let's hook it up. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Once we get out of isolation, I, I'm just going to be happy to see any humans, but I look forward to meeting you one day. You too, Joanna. <laughs> I look forward to that moment. Be well. Take good care of yourself. Everybody out there, just be safe. All right. Certainly. You have a wonderful day. Thanks again. I don't know about you. But I'm all about working smart, not hard. So when I ask, 
How might you activate your activism right now in a way that feels good for you? I take into consideration not only my workload, but my personal and family obligations and the things I simply enjoy doing. Are there ways for any of those things to overlap? For activism to be effectively sustainable, we must find clever ways to build it into our existing routines and favorite activities so that it's a joyful experience that feeds us as much as it benefits the cause. Another important piece of activism is understanding the playing field of your community. What's going on? The things that you care about, where does your community stand on them? I have so many people that tell me, when cannabis is legal in my state, I'm totally on board with it. But the truth is, until you have people, boots on the ground, in your town, doing this work, the work of the activist, activating your activism, change is going to be slow. So if you want change to happen, you got to make it. Now, the journalist in me encourages you to seek out source material. No more blindly trusting the media people. Things are questionable right now. Therefore, ask questions, which means deepen your understanding of your community beyond the local 6 o'clock news. Check out your city's website, you know, the .gov of your town, and find the listing for your city officials your mayor, your city council members, the city attorney, administrator. Start following all of those people on social media, if you're on social media. Now, if you are already on Insta or Facebook or Twitter, you might as well add them to your community field division, so to speak. They'll be talking about initiatives they're pushing, sprinkled in with posts that will give you a sense of them as a person, you know, in between their selfies and funniest, smartest, most amazing kid ever moments. If they're smart, they're also using their social platform to engage with you, their constituents. So do that. Be curious and start a dialogue if you're inspired. Remember, ask smart questions and be kind. And remember that activism is bridge building. So drop the ego and always, always, always look for points of connection with that person who doesn't see things like you do. Now, while you're perusing your city's website, check out the current initiatives, programs, upcoming city meetings, and community activities. Add those city council meetings and events to your calendar. Challenge yourself, your friends, and your family to attend the next one. Do it all together. Grab a bite, a beer, a bowl, or whatever after and discuss what you experienced and heard and what you think about it. What was missing from the dialogue? That right there, my friend, is the beginning of activating your activism. Boom! I mean, it can go anywhere you take it from there. Because you, my friend, are a powerful creator. And we are most powerful close to home. So get to work in your own community in whatever way feels good and inspire others to join you along the way. Let's continue Charlotte's web of activism and blanket our world with plant medicine, light, and love. Yes, it is. It's high time. If you want to collaborate or you have questions for me, Andrew, or you want to know more about The Last Prisoner Project, Head on over to the podcast 132 show notes at casuallybaked.com. Ideas and experiences translate people, so don't be afraid to shine a light on both your successes and setbacks and share them with the community. The way I see it, the more light shining, the better. If you're a social butterfly, connect with at casuallybaked on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Let us know how you're activating your activism. You can start by sharing this episode of the podcast with your community. Even the ones who don't love cannabis the way we do. It takes a village to activate hope and community connection. So even if they don't smoke it, puff puff, pass it on.
Casually Baked the Podcast was created, recorded, and produced by yours truly. Editing and sound design are in the capable hands of Arnav Gupta. The podcast theme music is by my highly talented friend, Seth Walker. If you aren't familiar with Seth's music, you can find High Time on his album, Gotta Get Back, wherever you're buying your music these days. I know he didn't create High Time for me, but it sure as shit sounds like he did, right? I hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has kind of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects Network. Network.